Hi, I'm Claire Mitchell, QC. Welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. I'm a lawyer who specialises in miscarriage of justice cases, and we're bringing you this podcast because we want to tell you about the women who were accused, prosecuted, convicted, and ultimately executed as witches in Scotland. I'm Zoe Vendatotsi, and I'm a writer who's always had an interest in the witches, and I feel that this dark mark against Scotland needs a reckoning. The campaign Witches of Scotland wants three things. Firstly, a pardon for all those convicted of witchcraft. Secondly, an apology for all those who were accused as witches. And finally, a national monument in recognition of all those who are affected by this terrible miscarriage of justice. Over the forthcoming weeks, we'll be talking to a whole host of experts about the history and the modern day connections to the witches of Scotland. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the Witches of Scotland podcast. Somewhat unbelievably, we're now on 62 episodes of this cavalcade of campaign and this week as in every other week of this stellar podcast series we have a fantastic and fascinating person to talk to that you're going to enjoy but before that Claire dear Claire I'm just wondering has anything happened in the news Well, here at Witch News Desk Central, depending on when you're listening to this, and not simply morning, noon or night, it may be that the consultation period is still open for a day, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or the consultation period has already ended for the Scottish Parliament finding out whether or not you support a pardon for those convicted of witchcraft. Now, If the time has gone past and you haven't been able to sign it or you're just coming across this podcast now and thinking, I would really like to do that, what can I do? The answer is you contact your local MSP and you just write to them to say, I've heard there's legislation proposed about a pardon for those people that were convicted of witchcraft. I support it. And just let your view be known that way. So that's another way post the public consultation period, people can do that. So I really hope we'll probably find out quite soon after how good um, the number of people signing up has been. Um, Public consultations like this don't tend to have thousands upon thousands of people answering them. I've looked at some of the other public consultations and I don't know, I think sometimes there's a feeling that, oh, well, everyone else will do it, so I don't need to. That sometimes is the case. But anyway, we will see how many people support it. There will be people that will be against it and will have written in and explained why they're against it as well. So it'll be interesting to see what they've got to say. But that's kind of the big news is that we'll be waiting soon to find out what the outcome of the public consultation will be. Because if we can get people on board for the public consultation, if there's enough people, if there's enough interest, then it will show the parliament that this is something that people want. And we don't want to think about the other alternative just now. Okay, that sounds like an excellent thing to do. There's also a couple of really cool things that are happening in Scotland that are friends of the show that we've had on to talk to or that we know that we've met at various things who are, I think, to an extent, certainly influenced by what they've learned of the campaign and has helped to generate things locally. Would you like to talk about the first of these events? Yes, shout out first of all to the People's Witch Trials and you can find out about them at peopleswitchtrials.com and I was going through their website and it's really, really nicely done. 
And they tell the stories of the people from that area who were accused, convicted and executed as witches. And in fact, they get go into quite a lot of detail about that. There's a, a website where it's connected to, which is www.languageladdy.scot, who goes in depth into the story of those who were accused and convicted in peoples. So it's really worth a look at that. And at the moment, they're working towards unveiling a new memorial in peoples. And we'll give you an update on that soon as well, because we think in the very, very near future, we will have another memorial. And that's, we've had one in Brechen, if you remember, um, Zoe went to that. We're going to have one in peoples as well. And there are other places around the country that have got in contact with us asking us about how they would go about doing that and getting their own memorial set up. So we've been in contact with a few people and hopefully that will, will come off for them as well. The other thing is in Forfar, is that right, Zoe? This is correct. So this is with podcast fave Judith Gorman. So we have an episode coming up soon with Judith where she's going to fill us in on what she's been doing in Forfar. She's got somebody that she's working with now as well, which is great. So there's two people beavering away on that. And one of the things that they've worked on is, is going to be a series of events about the witch trials that occurred in Forfar. And there's going to be a launch for that at 2 p.m. at the Meffin Museum in Forfar on the 22nd of October, which we'll be delighted to go along to as well. So I'm really looking forward to seeing Judith in real life. I don't think I've actually... I've not seen Judith in real life during the witch's situation. So it'll be nice to actually see her rather than just on the screen. So anyway, everybody can come to that. It's not just me and Judith. And it's at 2 p.m. on the 22nd of October. And I think there's going to be a whole bunch of different events. So that'll be really worth checking out. And if you can't make it on the 22nd, you know, they will they haven't released yet exactly what's happening and the dates for that. But I think there'll be various things over a period of time that you can go to. So that'll be good. Cool. It's really, really fantastic to see so many people getting involved in that really practical way in their local areas. It's brilliant. And if I can just mention at this point as well, there seems to be like a real increase in cases that Leo Igwe is getting involved with just now with the advocacy for alleged witches. If you don't already follow him and the work that he does on either Facebook or Twitter, it is really worth having a look at. I'd be careful with some of the images. They do say, you know, if anything distressing is going to come on. But these are current live accusations that unfortunately sometimes have been have been ending in death. It's really, really appalling. So it just I just want to mention that again. I know we've mentioned that, you know, several times. But I just think that whenever anybody says to any of our listeners, oh, well, what's the relevance of that? This is something I think to really remember that is absolutely still a current issue. And just look at what Leo is doing. Leo's not the only person, but he just is, is one person we have a lot of contact with. And he works over quite a big, broad area, several countries at least. So it is still something horrifyingly that's going on. Absolutely, Zoe. And I think the work that Leo does is... It was difficult even to watch, you know, like from from a secondary perspective to watch um, what he does on a daily basis. And he's always looking for support and looking for people to highlight the work that he does, because I think that he feels that if a light is shone on this, an international light is shone, it forces authorities to take action. So if you can follow him on Facebook, 
and look at the work that he's doing. It is distressing sometimes to see, um, but he posts this thing because this is the reality of, of what he's he's living with. Yeah, it's not just an academic, dusty issue that happened in books, you know. I saw somebody talking the other day, it was yesterday actually on Twitter, that was about what's recently been said. There was some, some fairly foolish thing was said on the BBC about John Knox clearing Scotland of Catholics. Now, just the horror of that phrase aside, okay, because that's not what this podcast is about. But one of the things that this person was commenting was saying, they said, I think erroneously, they said, well, most people just converted because they weren't really bothered about the religion, you know, blah, blah, blah. And somebody kind of went, well, actually, you don't, that's not accurate. And this person said, um, well, we have no idea what people thought hundreds of years ago. And I was thinking, yes, we do. We've got first-hand accounts. We've got things that were written at the time. And so when people say say to us, oh, people were different then. They're nothing like we are now. They were, they were ignorant. You know, they were dangerous. Scotland had a bloody history. Scotland had no more of a bloody history than any other country, I don't think. People weren't ignorant in comparison to today. They had a, a different belief system. And that is shown by the fact that this is still happening internationally. Right. We're seeing really, really similar echoes of stories. It's otherness, it's, you know, it's it's weakness or it's poverty or it's disability or, you know, it's it's looking to explain something that people find inexplicable. These same things are happening. And so when people say to us, this is a done, dusty story from that's got nothing to do with us now, it does have something to do with us now. And I think in no other time in my extremely long lifetime have I felt that we've had such a precarious hold on the liberty that we that we say that we have. You know, we like to think of ourselves as being really open and warm and wonderful and, you know, thinking. There's lots of stuff that's happening just now that's quite frightening. And I think people reach for for scapegoats during frightening times. And if we're not careful, we could go down similar paths. Am I suggesting that we will catch women and there'll be witch prickers and burnings? No, but I am saying that we do tend to target people that are vulnerable. And that's shown again and again and again. The trouble is that, I mean, it is such a cliche to say because it's true, but history does repeat itself. It's cyclical. And the fact is that if we don't properly study history and if we don't know our own history, then the example that you've given, people just make it up. Well, we don't know what happened then. Well, actually, we do. So let's actually take a look at what's happened in history. Let's assess it. We can look at it through different lenses. It doesn't have to be all the same people and all, all the same views. In fact, one of the really interesting things about history is looking at different people's interpretation of it. But at least the starting point is acknowledge that we do have information which we can look at that allows us to say, this is what was said at that time, or this is what was done at that time, and let's work, work from there. But what really scares me is the ability of the internet just to allow people to say well I think what happened was and then that snowball starts rolling and you're just never sure when it stops misinformation yeah. a go-go yeah no critical thinking or very little critical thinking or biased so-called critical thinking anyway we will put away our soapboxes at this point and we'll bring ourselves back to what we're doing Claire because we've been talking about peebles you've done a bit of research for this section, haven't you? Well, I have to say all credit goes to the website that I looked at for this, peopleswitchtrials.com. 
it has carefully set out the people that were involved in the 1929 witchcraft trial. So please go and do have a look at their website. It's got the names of all of the women and men that I'm going to uh, mention here today. And rather than tell their stories here today, I think I should definitely go and read them because they go into a great deal of detail and they're very interesting. But Zoe, there, there were stories about how witchcraft accusations came about because a couple of women rushed away, ignoring greetings of neighbours. And as a result, people thought, well, what are they? What are those two women doing today, ignoring us and rushing past us? They must be up to no good. It's so sad. And allegations, for example, of yawning, a man yawning. And the theory was that this man couldn't possibly have been in his bed all night. He must have been out, you know, up to no good, perhaps dancing with the devil because he should have been in bed all night. So why is he yawning? So it just those are just two examples of many that the website gives you. So go and have a look at the stories and the outcome of the witchcraft trials in that particular case. When you get to the website, you do click on a link that takes you to languageladdy.scot. And it sets out the story there. So please do go and have a read of that. Of the people whose names I'm about to read out, 24 were found guilty. Three were found not proven. And then they were retried and convicted second time around. So I know it's like we couldn't get you the first time. So we're just going to try you again. Let's keep going. Yeah. We remember the following people as women and men, not as witches. Janet Aitchison. Catherine Alexander, Helen Beatty, Marion Boyd, Catherine Brown, Agnes Chalmers, Marion Crozier, Margaret Dixon, Susanna Elphinston, John Joke Graham, Margaret Gowenlock, Isabel Haddock, Janet Henderson, Gilbert Hogg, Margaret Johnston, Marie Johnston, Patrick Linton, Catherine Marshall, William Matheson, Agnes Robertson, Thomas Stoddart, William Thompson, Agnes Thompson, Bessie Ewer, Jean Watson, Catherine Wood, and Margaret Yerkin. So we remember those people as people who were accused and executed as witches who were, in fact, just folk. Thanks for that, Claire. So that brings us on to today's guest, who is really fascinating, has a very interesting area of specialty, so our guest today is Dr. Jem Bloomfield. He's Assistant Professor of Literature at the University of Nottingham, and his previous publications include articles in scholarly journals on literature, theatre and religion, and the book Words of Power, Reading Shakespeare and the Bible. But Jem's going to be talking to us today about his area. He's definitely written about this. I get the impression that this is something that's not only for his work, but it's something that he's sort of generally passionate and interested in. But he writes about witches in crime fiction. And when, when we heard about this detective fiction, Claire and I both thought, oh, we'd love to get, get him on to talk about this. So without any further ado to talk about witches in detective fiction, we'd like to welcome Professor Jem Bloomfield. Hi, Jem. It's really great to have you on the Witches of Scotland podcast. Thanks so much. It's very kind of you to have me. Now, I think before we get started, I'm just going to say that we met, in inverted commas, you on Twitter in one of the nicer aspects of Twitter, which is where you can sort of randomly come across people that you wouldn't have met in real life, 
who do something that you go, oh, that's interesting. I would like to know more about that. So could you maybe tell people what it is that you talk about on Twitter and what it was that piqued probably my interest? Certainly. So my discussion on Twitter come out of mostly out of my uh, experiences as an academic and as a, a lay reader in the church. And a lot of my research is on Shakespeare and the Bible and detective fiction. Um, which are not an obvious trio, perhaps. <laughs> but I'm really interested in the way mid-20th century fiction draws on and uses things from the past, like Shakespeare and the Bible, and the uses it makes of those things, the way, the way it, it weaves its puzzles and mysteries. And the most recent study I've been doing is about witchcraft uh, and about how ideas of, of witchcraft and paganism work their way into the work of the queens of crime in the mid-20th century. That's so fascinating. It's such an, an interesting combination of angles. I love that. I think that's great. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those topics that sort of creeps up on you. Um, I, I originally did my PhD on early modern drama. So I looked at the Webster's The Duchess of Malfi. And then I looked at productions and later books that cited Webster. And yeah, then looking at the relationship between Shakespeare and the Bible in, in English-speaking culture, um, and then just noted them cropping up in detective fiction, of, of which I am a, a near-obsessive reader, um, and ended up in this subject. When you mention the queens of crime writing, who specifically are you talking about? Yes, well, this is a slightly contested issue, isn't it? There are various people that people describe as the queens of crime. Agatha Christie's always there. Um, she's always the dame. Then usually Dorothy Sayers, often Nia Marsh, Marjorie Allingham, sometimes Gladys Mitchell. I've even heard Nancy Spain uh, as vaunted as a, a junior branch of the royal family, should we say. But this study that I've just worked on is specifically about Agatha Christie, Nia Marsh, um, Marjorie Allingham and Gladys Mitchell. And they all wrote about witches in some way. Mm, yes, exactly. Um, they're, they're not, as you know, particularly famous for writing about witches. Um, oh, it's not something that would jump to my mind, I don't think. And that, that's actually why I ended up working on this. Um, a few years ago, I was working on a study of Agatha Christie that never quite saw the light of day. Two chapters of it are now an article. Another chapter is now the basis of this study. But one of the things that I kept coming back to was, why all the witches? You know, why, why the paganism? It kept popping up, not in every book, but regularly enough that... This seemed to be one of her things, um, you know, like her, her biblical quotations or her Shakespeare quotations. And I kept wondering, it's because it, it seems so incongruous, why a novelist who is famous for mousetrap-like plots, you know, rationalistic things that explain everything, everything goes in its place. Um, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm stereotyping here, of course, and those who love Agatha Christie will know that her work is much more complex and nuanced than that. But for a genre as well, that is frequently discussed as extremely rationalistic, extremely into explaining away all the mysterious and all, all, the, um, all the dubious. Why did these novels keep coming back to, to witchcraft and paganism? So that, that was a sort of impetus for working on this. You talked about your work, first of all, with the Bible and with Shakespeare. And of course, the most famous Shakespeare play involving witches is Macbeth. Now, we understand... She said very vaguely, because my understanding is very vague. We understand that Shakespeare may have been trying to curry favour with the king by inserting the witches into Macbeth. Is that something you've come across? It's, it's certainly a theory I've come across. And again, I will, I will tread fairly carefully here because I'm, I'm no longer an early modernist, really. <laughs> As I mostly work, work these days on, on later uh, work. But yeah, I mean, James had written about 
witches. He then sort of slightly recants that and writes as a skeptic. But it's certainly true that this is a subject that he's deeply engaged with. You know, he, he calls a witch who was charged at the time to court. Um, and there's an extraordinary anecdote about him telling her to perform the dance that she allegedly performed during her spellmaking in front of the court. He sort of restages this in, in front of the king's presence. Um, and I, I believe there's a there was a concern that when he had come back from Scandinavia, there had been witches who attempted to sink the boat. Um, it's certainly a, a very live question at the time. So I suppose you're right that there's, there is this very obvious, well, when you look at it, there's a, there's a very strong conduit that taps into ideas of witchcraft, witchcraft belief. I'm pretty sure Lisa Hopkins has, has explored extensively the way in which Macbeth is one of the most frequently cited plays by Shakespeare in uh, detective fiction. So perhaps that, that's one of the conduits where the imagery arrives. And of course, Christie writes a novel called By the Pricking of My Thumbs. So that, yeah, that, that, that stuff's around. And yeah, perhaps that provides a, I say a tap or a conduit via which Fire witch. <laughs> These images can can make their way into modern fiction. And why do you think it is in modern fiction that the idea of witches is so compelling, and why people like Christie went back to it? Very good question. And again, one, one that people write entire books and careers around. Um, in these cases, I think it's a couple of things. One, this is a major topic of, of sort of cultural discussion at the time. In the mid-century, you have the repealing of the laws against witchcraft almost accidentally, during the passing of the Fraudulent Mediums Act. You have the appearance in public of people like Gerald Gardner, who claim to be the last initiates of centuries of hidden covens that have been uh, suppressed and uh, having to live in secret. For the first time in hundreds of years, you have a significant number of people in Britain saying, witches, yep, that's me, hello, I'm, you know, I'm a witch, we are witches. There are lots of competing theories about what witchcraft is. It's not only something that people are talking about, it's Things, something that people are making wildly different counterclaims. And then, you know, I'd, I'd point to the work by Rondell Tutton, his Triumph of the Moon and his, his work on paganism in Britain, which is absolutely fascinating. And he points out the way in which the various laws over the previous centuries had taken drastically different visions of why you shouldn't be a witch. To simplify, and again, I'm not a legal historian, as I understand it, the Jacobean laws basically said you shouldn't be a witch because that's a way of causing harm to others. You know, it, it's like using a weapon or it's like stealing something. You know, it is a, a way of harming others, but you happen to be using magic, so don't do that. Then you have in the 18th century a more sort of sceptical enlightenment view where witchcraft is illegal because it's a way of duping people. It's a form of fraud. You know, you, you shouldn't pretend to cause sorceries and enchantments and you know, pretend, I think, it's, it's in the statute itself. Then in the 19th century, witchcraft gets gathered into, I believe it's the Vagrancy Act. So you shouldn't pretend to be doing sorcery and witchcraft. You also shouldn't show wounds whilst begging. You shouldn't sleep in outhouses. You shouldn't carry housebreaking implements. But you shouldn't bet in the street. So it, it seems to be gathered around this sort of low-level, antisocial, down with this sort of thing, move on yeah. into the next parish <laughs> attitude. <laughs> in the 1950s, you get the Fraudulent Mediums Act, where by making sort of fraudulent spiritualism illegal, the law seems to open up a space for respectable spiritualism, where it, it can be a sort of spiritual practice, almost a, well, a form of religion. And witchcraft then itself gets, as I say, almost accidentally made legal. It's no longer identified as something that's specifically identified by the, by the law. It's the time in which people are reassessing what they think witchcraft is and was. Um, 
And it's a radically different view. So you've got people like Montague Summers who are saying witchcraft is, is basically what the early modern inquisitors thought it was. It's an anti-Christian, anti-social secret system of cabals that's looking to bring down whatever it is that we hold dear. And you have Margaret Murray saying, no, witchcraft as persecuted in the, in the early modern period was a secret religion. It was an old, it was an ancient pagan religion you know, rooted in, in prehistory as far back as, as humanity went. And it was peaceful, earth-loving, full of healers. And it was oppressed by the Christian church and went under underground. You have people like uh, Charles Williams. Um, Charles Williams always taking a slightly eccentric view of things, saying that witchcraft is almost a sort of, it's, a, an, it's an accident. That witchcraft, which he identifies with Goetia, sorcery, is what happens when the noble dreams of learning and power fall away and become corrupted. So if, you know, if you're a, an early modern magician, you either end up in experimental science and become an alchemist and you know, and eventually a scientist or whatever, or you go into the kind of high-minded ritual magic that people like Charles Williams were very attached to, or sort of your moral corruption gets the better of you and you end up as a witch. And those are only a few examples of, of what people thought witchcraft was. They couldn't even agree on what it was, let alone whether you should do it or not. <laughs> so it seems that this is a, a thing that's, that's being hashed out in the culture of the time. People are not only disagreeing about what witchcraft is now, but what in the past it connected to. And that dilemma of what witchcraft was then and what our, I think, Professor Julian Goodyear says, you know, the 1930s, essentially a, a previous history of witchcraft was imagined, but it wasn't the history of witchcraft in Scotland. These weren't uh, Margaret Miller's idea of these covens and things like that. Um, and he's very, very clear that that has muddied the historical story of what it was to witchcraft in Scotland. However, it's a view which has lingered on. We're almost coming up to a century of that idea and that view, and it hasn't gone away. If anything, those ideas have gathered steam, I would think, over the last hundred years. And people are more willing or more interested in trying to create a history of witchcraft which far predates the Witchcraft Act and, and the people that we're talking about as people who definitely weren't witches. Do the modern writers, as a generality, talk about the Miller witches or the real witches? Real witches, i.e. the real people that were accused of witchcraft. What kind of ideas do the modern writers take? Talking about the ones that, that I write about here, the, you know, the, the four queens, I would say definitely the, the former. They're playing with exploring ideas of, of enchantment, of witchcraft, that, that are definitely post-Margaret Murray. And I, I entirely agree with you that that theory, though it was really, as I understand it, sort of debunked by the 30s and 40s, and certainly by the 70s in, in history, continues on um, as anyone who as I do on a, a colleague's 17th century uh, module, anyone who lectures occasional witchcraft will discover because you have undergraduates who know about witchcraft. Witchcraft was his secret religion. It's very good, very feminist, very earth-centered, healing, all this chat, um, and, and bad stuff was done to it. It, it is astonishing that you, you find yourself saying, oh, wow, people are absolutely certain that that was the case. So yeah, the, the witch as appears in Christie and Allingham and Mitchell uh, and Marsh is often a, a sympathetic character, though not always, sometimes as in something like the pale horse, they are harmful characters. But insofar as they are attractive or indulged or sympathetic, they tend to be this kind of post-Mariite witch. Yeah. It's interesting. It's something that we have to counter quite a lot with our campaign 
is that there, you know, we are very supportive of um, anybody expressing themselves in any way they wish to do. And if if people are witches, that's cool, go for it. We are not witches, and our campaign isn't about sort of rehabilitating the idea of witches. It's more about addressing the fact that these people were not witches, and that's what the legal argument rests on. And it's it's very alluring this idea. It was women just using nettles to cure things that were trampled on while they were standing up against patriarchy. But I just it just makes me demented that people don't just stick to the historical facts where there's totally enough to work with. I mean there's enough awfulness there. Nothing extra needs to be added to it. So it's quite a difficult thing to tread. And we do have the support of lots and lots of people that are modern day witches who completely get that that these were people that were accused of something that they weren't doing that didn't exist. And they can hold that in mind at the same time as their modern day practices. But it is interesting in fiction. I'm a writer of fiction myself, but you can see in fiction that it's a really alluring idea to look at, you know, and a really interesting thing to hang a story on because you can move between the two worlds of like the real and the unreal. Then you mentioning the pale horse there, I'd forgotten about that because I've not read tons of Christie, but I do remember a few years ago there was a BBC adaptation with was it Rufus Sewell? And there was the witches in the in the kind of the lovely English village that he visited. And I actually had completely forgotten about that. But it's it's really compelling in fiction. Like this really interesting that you can reach out of a normal realistic explicable plot to an otherworldly scary potentially quite attractive female who can wreak havoc or at least tell you that things are going to go wrong in some way so i can see why it's so alluring for fiction writers yeah there's there's a a line i think it's robin briggs who says that, that witchcraft is a crime with a hole in the center because any any historian has to simply from a historiographical point of view advance on the assumption that the records are talking about something that didn't happen, even if people confess to it. And I, I actually borrowed that idea at one point in, the, in the, um, the study, because it seems to me that what they're writing about is a subject with a hole in it. It's not simply that people are, as you say, putting in fiction what is definitely there in the real world. The fiction is itself debating, dramatising, proposing ideas of, of witchcraft. Um, and, and that can, I wouldn't say stand for, but it could involve other subjects with with sort of blurry edges or socially unacceptable um, edges. Gladys Mitchell's fiction about a detective who is often described as witchy and young women who who experience sort of enchantments. Marion Gibson has has used the term bilocation um, in fiction of this period, the the way in which a witch can represent multiple states, and that can include certainly Gladys Mitchell's fiction, strong solidarity with other women, affection, sexual attraction. There's an extraordinary scene in Death and the Maiden where Mrs. Bradley, her detective, and a friend of hers are walking along a river by Winchester Cathedral, supposedly looking for a water nymph, because there is a a very unsavoury character called Tidson, um, who claims he's seen a naiad in the river. In fact, it's, it's a cover for the crimes he's doing. And for a moment, Laura, this young woman, thinks she sees the water nymph and goes off uh, in search of it. And it turns out to be a friend of hers. And there's this extraordinary, beyond lyrical sequence. It goes on for pages and pages about this: these two young women swimming naked in the river. And Mrs. Bradley sits there and thinks about Apuleius and, and poetry um, and watches the sun coming up behind the river. When, and it's something like when, when all turns to, to air and water, and light as it was at the creation. And clearly something is going on in this novel that is more, oh, that's probably water nymph. Oh, no, it's not. It's my mate. 
um, there is this extraordinary sort of rhapsody and, and density of poetic textures of the novel that is saying something about these young women and the old woman looking at them and, and some sort of enchantment is going on. It can be a very powerful, I won't call it a metaphor, because I think that's, that might imply that it's, it might sound as if one thing is standing in for another. It is rather that the metaphorical systems, the symbols are sort of enmeshing and witchcraft is being used to say things about women's relationships to each other that may connect with what we hoped about the past, but may also be a sort of a, a looking forward to the future. That sounds very vague, but you know what I mean? <laughs> so the witches in the fiction aren't always, you know, this is this is a like a bad character that's the, an agent of destruction and can explain away. So sometimes it can be a positive reading of being a witch as well. Absolutely, yeah. So in, in Christie's Murder is Easy, there's a character who has heard that there has been murderousness and nefariousness in a, a country village called Witchwood Under Ash. Big wink. There's someone who's read John Buchan's Witchwood, if ever I heard one. He wants to go down and investigate, and a friend of his says, he says, I need a, need a cover story, I need an explanation. What am I doing in this, this village where no one's ever heard of me? And the bloke, his friend goes, oh, that's easy. You're collecting folk customs. You're looking for witchcraft. Everyone knows, English countryside, absolutely cram-packed full of all this witchery and, and, and paganism and stuff. So your cover story is that you're interested in, in paganism, but really you're going to be trying to search out murders. He goes down there, meets this young woman called Bridget. Again, big wink for those who know her, <laughs> Margaret Murray. Is she a Celtic goddess? Is she a Christian saint? And he becomes bewitched by her. He keeps using the word witch or bewitchment. And also in this village, there is this, again, very unpleasant character who owns an antique shop, who appears to dabble in black magic, a character called Ellsworthy, who, yeah, seems to be this sort of hangover from the, from the 1890s. He spouts all this very tired, sort of vaguely satanic stuff about the, the artificial being superior to the natural, the sort of, you know, warmed over Walter Pater and Oscar Wilde stuff. And it seems to me that the, the novel, in order to present Bridget as this enchanting, mysterious character, has to hive off like ritual magic and diabolism and that kind of thing and potential Satanism and say, oh no, that's over there. That's something different. That's done by creepy men who go on about Baroque furniture. The, the enchantment of the witch is beautiful women and the mysteriousness of the countryside and sort of finding this, this map of symbols that will make sense of the world. And this happens again and again where Naya Marsh does it when her detective has a sort of out-of-body experience. And it's made clear that this is definitely not the same as the like mad satanic cult that's being run in the same um, novel. So that the repeatedly come up against the, the way in which, yeah, not only can witchcraft sometimes be a positive image, but it's often run in tandem, if you like, with something that 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 they cast all the bad associations of, of, of witchcraft in that period onto. It really encapsulates the absolute duality of the way people view witchcraft. The idea of the all-powerful woman doing good in society, slightly ethereal, I'd probably call it a wood witch, a sort of nymph, that kind of idea, or the the creepy satanic cults that are plotting against you and you have to be on the lookout for them because whatever they are, they're going to be doing evil probably in a small English village. Absolutely. It's, I'm not a cultural detective with this sort of thing, but it's interesting the difference between England and Scotland. So in Scotland, many, many, many more people were accused and killed. In England, it was far, far fewer, for obviously for the, for the crime of being a witch. But England seems to have a much more witchy vibe generally and I don't know what if it's because of the way it's been presented in films or if it's because 
you know, it's something that's that I suppose maybe more literature and, and film has come out of England and, and so it's got a stronger kind of visual reinforcement that doesn't really bear anything, any relation to history. But it's interesting to me that in Scotland, there doesn't seem to sort of be as much that kind of benign witch sort of line going through fiction, whether it's film or books or whatever. But there does seem to be much more in England, you know, like it's maybe just says a lot about me and what I've read and what I've seen. But this sort of idea about, you know, sort of white dresses and flowers in your hair, a bit midsummery, which I know is not England. But like that seems to be more of a thing in England, like the green, green men and that sort of thing. Whereas in Scotland, it's just really dark and horrible. Like there's not a kind of like a nice reading. And again, that could just be me and there might be listeners that'll say to me, oh, no, you've just not read X, Y and Z. But it does seem to be much, much harsher in Scotland, which I think speaks to us as a nation. Our history of witchcraft, I mean, it's not the best, it's not the best history. I mean, I know a lot of people don't know about it, apart from academics, although a lot more, thankfully, are getting to know about it now. I suppose that there isn't that same history to draw on from the 1930s onwards of people identifying these covens that went through history, because... I don't think, maybe I'm very wrong, please listeners, uh, Jem, please tell me if I am, but I, I don't think that affected Scotland so much. I think it was mostly an English thing. Yeah. Like, I'm not aware of Scotland becoming involved in the sort of reimagining of witchcraft. Maybe I'm wrong. I certainly get the impression that you're right in terms of sort of the emergence of witchcraft spirituality, we might say. There's a cracking book on the subject, which you probably read, Marion Gibson's Rediscovering Renaissance Witchcraft. Do you know, I've not read it, but I have heard it. So that's a link for me to go and look at that. She just talks about the ways in which it's it's not always Scottish writers, but it's very frequently writers taking traces from sort of Scottish images of witchcraft and then reworking them in a, in a different cultural context. And yes, having said I'm not a legal historian, I'm I'm certainly not a historian of, of Scottish literature, and I am one wall away from a, a senior uh, officer of the Scottish Text Society, so I will make clear that I do, I do not have expertise here. My reading in Scottish literature is, is mostly confined to people like William Dunbar and Robert Henderson. But yeah, there does seem to be a split, doesn't there? There is a temptation, again, not a historian, to wonder whether this reflects religious anxieties, where you have a much more consciously sectarian nation and a nation where, <laughs> not without religious conflict, let us say, um, but there's a there's a more secure established church. I do wonder whether, because a lot of the, the stuff that comes up about sort of images of witchcraft frequently seems to be drawing on memories, nostalgia, ideas of sort of repressed Catholicism. So obviously, on a very crude way, the, the excitement, I think, that that a lot of English 20th century and 19th century writers feel about seeing some candles and a chalice and a, you know, uh, and a virgin um, and some blood. And you're like, this, this is just Gothic Catholicism, isn't it? This is just the, the language of, of repressed Catholicism. And even, I think it's Kipling, isn't it, who has a one of his stories in Puck of Pook's Hill is all about how the, the fey folk and all the, the good people could only dance in Elizabeth Reign. When it all got more, more Puritan, they had to leave. England has never been, been fairy full ever since the Protestants came in. Um, and I think you can afford to probably indulge that a bit more and get a bit misty-eyed about it if you don't have a, a sort of an active, you know, religious tension in that sense. But, but that is just me speculating. Have you looked at all at more modern, sort of later on from the mid-century, 20th century writers and their use of witches in fiction? I've looked a bit because it seemed to be quite different to the examples I, I mentioned in the, in the conclusion, the, the Standing Stones in P.G. James's Private Patient. There's a Rebecca Tope novel, I think it's Fear in the Cotswolds, 
where one of the narrating characters is, is a, a Wiccan. And I was very struck by the way in which the detective novel genre seems to have moved into witches definitely exist and they are a religious group within a pluralist society. Part of the, the energy and part of the excitement, I think, in the mid-century novel is this uncertainty. Are witches the descendants of hundreds of years of secret religion? Are they a, a conspiracy against society? Um, are they eccentrics just living in, in, the, in the countryside? Do they know something about time and space and telekinesis and magic that, that the rest of us don't know? I mean, you know, the detective novel does have this sort of mid-century wobble where relativity becomes, you know, sort of popularly discussed. J.W. Dunn's theories about precognitive dreaming, whether you can accidentally leave the space-time sort of set that you're in by dreams. Is that why we sort of seem to remember things that, that we had, we saw in dreams? You know, J.B. Priestley writes um, Time and the Conways and Inspector Calls, these plays that draw on the idea that time can, can move around in ways you don't expect. And Dorothy Sayers writes the documents in the case, a novel that's all about, hang on, if relativity is true, the detective novel is absolutely up a creek. Actually, the same thing happens in, in various uh, detective novels refer to J.W. Dunn. If we can, in fact, see things outside space-time accidentally in dreams, this needs some explanation. So there seems to be a, a ferment in the, in the mid-century about, in, in what, what I would call non-pejoratively, middle-brow culture, you know, the public discussion of, of cultural and scientific ideas that I think then gets established and, and more or less closed off at, at the point at which Wicca and other forms of witchcraft spirituality take their place as a, as a recognised group who haven't revolutionised our view of history, haven't totally turned upside down the entire sort of establishment and, and the entire understanding of, of the last 400 years, but are a group largely happy to take their place amongst other religious groups protected in a broadly more secular society. I say at one point, you know, in the mid-century novel, it's exciting to wonder if there are witches. It's less exciting in a society where, like, they'll email you and tell you about their international conference next month. <laughs> There's a level of metaphysical stability that, that takes away from the enchantment. It would be much, much better if a raven delivered you a <laughs> yeah. letter telling you when the event was. It would. It yeah. would. But I mean, I've just been reading just in the last few days on Twitter, people asking, sort of tongue in cheek, but asking witches if they can hex the Supreme Court in America, you know, and saying, you know, I read one tweet saying, where's the harm? Either it'll work or it won't, but you should give it a try anyway, witches. So, which I thought was quite interesting. But I think I read a detective novel recently, a modern um, Scottish one that definitely used the witches as a kind of a, a plot device. But it wasn't so much that there was current day witches. It was it was to sort of to set a kind of a spooky tone where somebody came across the body of somebody who'd been killed more recently, but they'd been put somewhere where they had killed witches. So using sort of locations of which, you know, which adjacent happenings as a way of, of moving things along and kind of giving that sort of an extra angle. But then it was explained away in a kind of a rational way. It wasn't, there wasn't like a witch to explain anything, like the witch hadn't done the murder or anything like that. But it was just that it helped set the tone and it was Scottish. So again, I think that was that kind of Scottish spooky setting where bad things have happened. So it's it's easier for more bad things to happen because, you know, women were down that cellar or whatever. That's intriguing. But, the stability of the explanation is, is terribly interesting. One of the things I've been positing about these novels is that 
detective fiction offered an, un- an unusual, unexpected way of dealing with paganism and witchcraft, because it seems terribly rational, it seems terribly explanatory. But it, first of all, it foregrounds questions of sort of evidence and proof and, and solution. So it's with lots of novels, you know, brilliant novels like Lolly Willows or Living Alone, you know, your classic mid-century witchcraft novels, there is sort of a level of, of ambiguity or, or blending of ideas that, that doesn't need to be solved at the end, doesn't need to be stabilised. But that the detective novel, and I'm half inching this from Svetlana Todorov, the literary theorist, already has two stories within it. It, it is a form that sets up a dialectic between two different stories in which the same objects appear. So that there is the story, if you like, that, that's presented by the crime or by the murder, which is always, of course, the wrong story, because the detective comes in and says, oh, no, that clock doesn't say that. In fact, that candlestick is from somewhere else. Actually, that, that there's bloodstains under the rug, not over them. And the act of reading a detective novel and the act of the detective working is to actually take all the items that were in the first story and reassemble them into the true story. So it's something that, that these novels were using a sort of basic function of the detective novel to play off these parallel stories against them. In fact, there was probably no genre, aside from possibly the Gothic, that was better suited to holding two stories in tension and saying, oh, you could read it like this, or you could read it like this. You know, that, that's sort of thrown into, and it, it was a, a specific historical moment, I think, although that, some people have questioned that. If you look at the, the earlier era, if you like, look at you know, the adventures of Sherlock Holmes, there's quite a lot of mentions of, of witchcraft or sorcery, but they happen very early on, they're immediately squashed. So Watson says, oh, Holmes, you rogue, you would have been burnt as a witch 300 years ago because you seem to know things that other men do not know. And, and uh, your man Holmes says, no, that's nonsense. Look, it's all scientific. Um, or someone says, how do you know this? This is sheer witchcraft. And Holmes says, don't be stupid. It's inductive reasoning. And so that they, you know, they appear very early on. There's a little bit of, of mysteriousness and then it's closed deliberately by Holmes. At the other end of the scale, in the 21st century, you have a whole burgeoning of paranormal, witchy, cosy detective novels, a subgenre of a subgenre that I have a particular taste for. Apart from it, the only thing they have like the best titles ever. So back to spell one, better than hex is, is a particular favorite of mine. Uh, <laughs> it's genius, isn't it? Um, the Starry Hollow Witches, I quite like them, heavily drawing on a, a certain TV show that some people may recognize. And in that, witchcraft exists, but it exists as sort of metaphysically stable as um, science or physics. So some people simply are witches, and there's also werewolves and vampires, that kind of thing. And, and vampire blood has a certain chemical composition that does have certain effects. And, you know, there are werewolves, and they run the werewolf bar down the street. Are these, yes. are these American yeah. generally American writers? Yeah. Okay, right. Because there's much more room for that. Because I'm thinking of something like, say, Practical Magic, you know, which is, you know, a really kind of classic thing about witches that are descended from early witches that were treated very badly. And it's it's somewhere in Massachusetts. I can't remember exactly where it's set. And there's, of course, a tremendous film with that one. And that fits in with the whole sort of idea about the woman that was kind of, you know, trapped. And then there's a bad man and she beats the bad man with witchcraft. And then a good man comes along. And so it's a really romantic witch thing, but quite harsh. I mean, there's a domestic abuse line in, in uh, Practical Magic. So really, if you've not it's very good. I really like Alice Hoffman, but she often has like these magical things. But I'm wondering how often it's used in detective fiction as a kind of um, a convenient sort of fix, sort of like, oh, it was it was the witch, you know, rather than having to explain it in a straightforward way. But in detective fiction, does it tend to follow, as you said before, kind of scientific, logical rules? It's not a kind of a 
ghost in the machine sort of thing. Yes, so you're absolutely right. The, the as I say, at, at sort of both ends of the, the period I'm looking at, it's either there are, there is no mystery; it is science, or in this particular subgenre um, of the, the cozy paranormal witchcraft, it's ontologically stable. Witchcraft operates as as part of yeah a part of a predictable system. Um, although fascinatingly, uh, given that you mentioned that novel, those novels often start or series of novels often start with someone discovering that in fact they are descended from nth generations of witches and, and it's a genetic thing yeah or it's about their family history um it, it intersects brilliantly with the we inherited a b&b on the east coast genre uh, also a, you know, a favorite genre of mine where you go back to a small town again and you know and just rediscover your roots and you have to you know have to work out what's different living in a small town than a big city and then some chap wearing a lumberjack shirt and you know you end up getting married to him by the end of the novel it's all cracking stuff <laughs> and then in in the middle of those two genres you have this form where yeah witchcraft is mysterious and it may or may not exist but as you say it's not used as a get out it's not used to, to solve the case i think that's one of the reasons Ditto, actually, the citation of, of the Bible in these novels. So one of the reasons why I think a lot of scholarship on crime fiction hasn't gone into it, because it's not obviously part of the mechanism of the plot. It's not obviously, if, if you were looking at literally who done it, how they done it, who didn't do it, it's something that appears quite tangential. My mind's going off in so many different directions about books that I want to read. And Jem, we could keep you here for hours talking to you about this because it absolutely intersects with what Zoe and I are interested in, which is stories of witchcraft and crime fiction. I mean, yeah. you know, or even true crime indeed are interest. But I had an idea while you were talking to us and I thought, oh, God, while we've got Jem here, Jem, could you recommend to Zoe and I three cracking books which intersect detective fiction and witches? And Zoe, we could do a book review. Oh, yeah. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Why not just do just do our own true crime of witches of Scotland books? Now, Jim, well, I know we're putting you hugely putting you on the spot, but can you think of three good books that you would like to recommend that you think our listeners would like to read? I certainly can. Having done various references to this book, I'm in fact surrounded by piles of the damn things. Um, <laughs> we should explain to listeners that when we're talking to Jem, we're seeing him on Zoom with a very extensive bookcase behind him of thousands of books as well. So as well as books being beside him, they're around him and all about him. So asking him to narrow it down to three is perhaps a wee bit cheeky, but if you can. No, that's... Um, Number one has to, and this is fiction you're thinking of, yeah. yeah Num number one, I would recommend Look to the Lady by Marjorie Allingham. It okay. is, from one point of view, so it's a mash. She, she, she talks about it as one of her plum pudding novels where she said, I, used, uh, I, I wrote these sort of carefully plotted books and I also wrote plum puddings where you just chuck all the stuff in and stick a finger in and see what comes out. Um, and that is definitely one of these. It's a story about a lost heir to a, to a fortune who has to go back home because the chalice that was has always been kept by his family is threatened with being stolen by an international gang of crooks. And if that happens, it's always a legend that if that chalice is stolen, the monarchy falls. 
and there's a witch in the woods, and yeah, it's all it's it's a great mishmash of stuff. It's also, I must admit, strikes me as a, a novel that slightly rewrites chunks of Dracula, but writes as what if you had a lovely castle in, in the woods and just people kept bothering you and trying to climb up it and get in and get to your ancestral like blood secrets, and would they just leave you alone? There's terribly nice gypsies that would stop them if you could only help, you know. <laughs> right, okay. that's, uh, that, that's worth a look. That's that's intersecting so many different things that I'm interested. I can't tell you. So that sounds brilliant as number one. Number two, Death and the Maiden, the one that I, I just mentioned there. Death and the Maiden by Gladys Mitchell. Now, it doesn't technically have anyone in it called a witch. Oh, actually, Mrs. Bradley may be referred to as a witch a couple of times. But that is that is tapped into all the other currents that we've been talking about, that, that you know, paganism and a sort of mysterious and enchanted solidarity between women and the sort of the poetic scope uh, of the witchcraft novel, that, that's definitely number two. Number three had better be a Christie, I think. Um, yeah, I think. I'm tempted to go for Pale Horse, but that's more a debunking novel. That's more about how witchcraft is definitely not witchcraft. So why not go for Murder is Easy, which is the one I mentioned earlier. Um, I love the about... title as well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's um, and as I say, that, that is definitely, it, it intrigues me with its dialogue with um, John Buchan's Witchwood, because as you know, that, that novel posits the idea that in this, David Semple becomes a minister of this Kirk and this small community, and he gradually comes to realise this horror that in the woods they're still celebrating the pagan rites. And Murder is Easy sends its character off to a place called Witchwood under Ash, on the pretext that literally everyone knows that villagers are out in the woods doing the doing the paganism, that's where it starts from. That's not the horrible secret that's uncovered. That's that's sort of a given. Now let's let's chat about murder. <laughs> so yeah, it's got this very strange relationship with one of the, one of the great sort of trend-setting novels of witchcraft. They sound great, fantastic. Thanks for those directions, Jim, and thanks for joining us today. It's been really fascinating. Who would have thought, Claire, when we started this campaign, that this would have led us to discuss presentations of witches in mid-century detective fiction? Not me, but my goodness, it hits the spot for me. Yes, yes, that's good. <laughs> well, thank you so much for inviting me on. I've, I've had a lot of fun. Well, thanks, thanks for giving up your time. We've really appreciated it. Thank you, Jim. Thanks as ever for joining us for the Witches of Scotland podcast for this, our 62nd episode of six. Please do get in touch with us on the socials. If you have got time, if you're listening to this in the very, very small window that's left on the public consultation, please do let people know through the uh, the different links that we've got up on Twitter and so on, what your feelings are in the consultation. If it's too late and it's closed, it doesn't mean you can't get in touch with the MSP. So please do. And as ever, do get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram to let us know about anything sort of interesting that's happening in your area that you think that we should cover. Yeah, that's a really good point, Zoe. If there's anything going on in your local area that deals with the witchcraft trials, we'd really like to know about it because there's so much going on over the country at the moment. It's difficult to keep up. I saw someone um, very recently, and I'll try and look into this a bit more and try and post links, Zoe. Somebody had created a tartan through identifying the people who had yeah. died witches on a timeline. And yeah. I thought that was fascinating, but I just found out about it too late to be able to go to it. Yeah, no, there's there's loads of really interesting stuff that's happening. Heel and Harrow are on tour. 
So that they're definitely worth having um, searching what they're up to. They're doing a tour across Scotland. So that's really interesting. There's loads of cool stuff that's happening just now. But if you know about something that we've not covered, please do get in touch with us. Yeah, we look forward to hearing from you. And it gives something for Zoe to do when she's not um, talking to her ravens or training her, her imaginary raccoons. <sighs> They're not imaginary, Claire, just because you've never seen them. Okay? Yeah, that's You're right. The arbiter of reality. They're, yeah, hashtag show me the evidence. That's what I say, Zoe. Yeah, Claire Mitchell, Casey, enough. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's an answer to actually showing me the evidence. <laughs> I will show you the evidence when I see fit to show you the evidence, uh-huh. and that will be in a court of law. And if you get me in that court of law, I may show you the evidence. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, I think we all know if we got Zoe in a court of law, whether or not she could produce those raccoons or not. It'd be just exactly like LA law, but smaller with claws. <laughs> <laughs> and she's not talking about Zoe and I. It's it's. No, we're are... normal height. I mean, yeah. <laughs> don't explain the joke, man. <laughs> okay, thank you, thank you for joining us. Indeed, join in next time when we'll be speaking to another expert. Yeah, we will indeed. Thanks very much. Cheerio. Bye. If you'd like to learn more about the Witches of Scotland, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our mailing list at www.witchesofscotland.com to keep updated with the campaign. On that site, you'll be able to find how to link with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.